As you get to um, uh, Matthew 18, I want you to look in the 21st verse. And we want to set up the message that we will share with you today. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples really about how that we're to act as, as believers and, and how at times we're to act towards each other. And there was a question that came up about, um, you know, if somebody sins against you or you see someone sinning that's a part of the congregation as a believer, what are you supposed to do? And he says, well, you're supposed to go to them and do a one-on-one and say, man, brother or sister, I see that this has been happening in your life. And he says, and if they agree with you and they repent, then you've gained a friend. But if they just write you off and say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I disagree with you. He says, then bring one or two others and then sit down and talk to them and say, man, what you're doing is is just wrong. It's going against everything that our Lord has taught us. And then if they still don't uh, accept that, he says, then you bring them before the church. And you present it before, before the church. And so they're talking about someone who is continually to do things that are wrong according to God's word. How are you supposed to respond to it? Well, after Jesus has given them these instructions, you come to verse 21. And it says, then Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, now Peter was being pretty magnanimous because during that day, the Jewish rabbis and the tradition taught that you were to, um, you were to sit there and forgive someone up to three times. So if they do something wrong, you forgive them. They do it again, you forgive them. They do it again, you forgive them. You do this three times. When it gets to the fourth time, they said, hey, no, you don't have to forgive them. Apparently, uh, they are not remorseful. Apparently, they're not sorry for what they've done. So you don't need to forgive them. So Peter, taking the teaching of three, more than doubled it. And he came to Jesus and says, you know, if some, a brother, if a person that's close to us, if they keep messing up, if they keep sinning against us, do we forgive them seven times? And look at Jesus' response. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. What he's telling Peter, he says, forgiveness is not a mathematical equation. He says, it's a disposition of your heart. And you don't keep track of it. And so it's not like you're saying, okay, I've done it six, I've done it seven, boom, I'm done. No. He says, you forgive them 70 times seven. Now, I would think that almost every one of us here has got somebody in our life that is a 70 times seven person. That means they just keep messing up. And you keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. 70 times 7 person. Now, if you've got one, I want you to place them in your head. Don't shout it out. They may be here. Uh, But place that in your head. Place that in the head. And then as you place that in the head, Robin's going to come and she's going to sing a song called Tornado. And I want you to listen to the words of the song. I want you to picture that individual. And when you think about forgiveness with the 70 times 7 person. What about those words? Did you have somebody in your mind? And could you see that even in that song, it it captured a lot of what we sometimes struggle with. And every time I find healing, you're getting in a new mess. But what that's doing is it's teaching me to learn the real meaning of forgiveness. Have you ever had someone that was um, an acquaintance of yours that you said, I would like to move and not leave a forwarding address? (laughs) But if I did that, then I probably wouldn't learn the real meaning 
of forgiveness. Peter's getting right to the heart of it. You know, there are times when someone's done something bad to you, you struggle with that, and you deal with that issue. What happens when it's like over and over and over? And so Jesus said, well, let me just tell you a parable about that. And to give you a good understanding about forgiveness and to understand the real meaning of forgiveness. And he tells them a story and it's found in the 23rd verse and it goes through the end of the chapter. And so open your Bibles. We're just going to walk through this story that Jesus tells them. He starts out and in uh, verse 23, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So there's a king who has people that work for him and he wants to settle accounts. By settling accounts, he is saying, these people owe me something and so they rightfully owe this to me and I'm getting ready to call it due. Now when it says servants, these are not slaves, these are people who work for the king. So these are like high-ranking civil servants. These could be governors of part of the area. So these are some big folks. And he says, I'm beginning to pull in the accounts and I want to settle accounts with them. Well, in verse 24, it says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, what you have to do is put yourself back in uh, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was telling this story and you're a part of the audience. And when he says there was a man who owed him 10,000 talents, what did that communicate to the people? Well, the word talent talent is a denomination of currency in the Roman Empire. It is the largest denomination of currency in the entire empire. Uh, For us in the United States, back in 1934, we printed a $100,000 bill. It was a gold certificate, a $100,000 bill. Now, if you have one of those, then be sure and come and share it with us. We'd love to see that because they're not out there anymore. They just did it for about a year. But $100,000, that was the largest denomination we've ever had of a bill. Now, for them in the Roman Empire, when they said a talent, that was the largest denomination that they knew. But it wasn't just one talent, it was 10,000 talents, 10,000. In the Greek language, 10,000 was the highest number that they even had a word for in their vocabulary. So that's the highest amount that you could ever think of. It's like when we we were growing up, when we tried to express that something cost a bunch, we would say, it's like a gazillion dollars. Okay, or to quote Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond. That's what that 10,000 is. I mean, it is infinity. We would look at it as billions and trillions of dollars. And he said there was a servant that owed him 10,000 talents. So you put whatever number, it could be billions of dollars that this servant owed him. So he saw what he owed. He calls him in. And in verse 25, it says, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. During that day, in the ancient empire, Roman Empire, they would sell people as slaves to pay the debt. You couldn't pay your debt. One of the options is you'll be sold into slavery, you and all of your family. Now, even selling them into slavery 
it's almost, it's a mere pittance compared to what these billions of dollars are owed. But at least the king will get something for it. And so that was his right. And he said, I'm going to sell you, sell all your family. You're going into slavery. Well, then you get to verse 26. And in verse 26, he says, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He has no resources. He has no hope. So he gets on his knees and he begs him. And he says, if you'll just have patience with me, I will pay you everything. All right, choir, is there any way he's ever going to pay him everything? No. He's he's, He's making a promise he can't keep. And the king knows that too. The king could have just come back and said, yeah, right. Really? You're going to pay me these billions that you owe me? And so he's begging. So how does the king respond? Well, look what he says in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity for him. Pity. This is a word that is translated other places in the New Testament as compassion. It's a word used about Jesus and a word that Jesus used in a number of his parables. The word pity, the Greek word is a word, it's splotna. Splotna. Just the thought of it. Splotna. It just comes up from the gut. It literally means from out of the intestines. People felt that the intestines, or it's kind of like what we would call uh, something from a heart. It was a gut-level feeling. And, and I, this has always stayed with me because I had a preaching assignment uh, when I was getting my Master of Divinity at Southwestern. It was an advanced preaching class. And uh, they said, we're going through the Gospels. You pick a section. They gave us a list of, of passages that we could take. Yeah, I wasn't real smart back then either. And I said, feeding of the 5,000. I'll take feeding of the 5,000. Do you realize that is the only miracle that is found in all four gospels? Do you realize I had to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and study all the accounts for that? Other guys picked some miracle. It took place in just one gospel. (laughs) They were ahead of me. All right, but I chose this. And when I chose it, I got to that word about how Jesus felt compassion on the crowds. And it was this splot now, this compassion, this depth of feeling. And you would see it throughout his life. He looked at the, at the people and they were walking around. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he had this splot in the forelimb. He saw the woman uh, who was a widow whose only son had died. And a funeral procession came by. And he had this splot now, this pity, this compassion. And he went and he touched him and he brought him back to life. It was the story of the Good Samaritan that when that Jewish man was beaten up on the side of the road going to Jericho and others passed by, it was the Samaritan that came by and had splotna, compassion, pity for him and took him in. There was a story of the prodigal son that when he wasted all of his inheritance and when he began to walk back to his dad and just say, I'm just willing to be a servant in the family, it says that the father had splotna, pity, compassion. He ran out and he embraced his son. It's that kind of deep compassion that a king is looking at a person who has misused resources terribly and owes him infinity and beyond, and he felt pity for him. And in the midst of that compassion, he says, I'm going to release you from your debt. What he did was he showed mercy and he showed grace. Let me give you a little bit of difference on those two. Mercy. 
Mercy is not giving to a person what he deserves, while grace is giving to a person what he does not deserve. This is worth writing down. Mercy is not giving to a person what he deserves. What did this man deserve? He deserved to be sold into slavery. But the king had mercy on him and he says, I'm not going to sell you into slavery. While grace is giving to a person what he does not deserve. And what did he give him? He gave him a release from his debts. And he says, you don't deserve this. There's nothing that you've done, but I'm going to take away these debts. You're going to be released. Mercy and grace. He has placed both of those for this servant. And so when you're hearing Jesus tell this story, and you're just sitting out there in the crowd, and he says, and the king says, you are released from your debt, and he forgave him the debt. Hey, I'm out in the crowd. I'm cheering. I'm going, yeah, this is great. Good job. Good story. All right, I'm for the little guy. I'm so glad it worked out. But then... Jesus says, but not so fast, my friend. There's more to the story. And that's where you come to verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So when he left the king's presence to where he had received this lavish mercy and grace and forgiveness... He went out, and when he went out, he found a fellow servant. It's a co-worker. Somebody may work in the office with him. It may be a fellow governor if he was a governor. But it's a fellow servant. It's a guy that works for the king just like he does. And he owes him a 100 denarii. Now, a denarii, one denarii, represents one day's wages for a common laborer. To put it in our terms, we could say a minimum wage person could work all day and they would get one denarii. Now, a hundred denarii, it's about 30% of your salary. If you took an annual, it could be about 30% of your wages. Now, for most of us, we would say that's a pretty heavy amount. But if you're a civil servant and you've been able to run up a debt of over billions, and then all of a sudden you look down and you've got just a minimum wage employees, what they would have made for like uh, uh, a few months. In his relationship to what he's been forgiven, this is pittance. This is like dinner for two at Chick-fil-A. I mean, it's small stuff. And so he walks out and he finds this guy. This guy has owed him this dinner for two at Chick-fil-A for a while because he loaned him that money and the guy's not paid him off. And he's just come back for this incredible release of all this debt. And so what's he going to do for that guy? And seizing him, he began to choke him. This is not what we were expecting. And he says he choked him. And then after he choked him, he began to demand saying, pay what you owe. So when he meets this guy, he's going to say, hey, how are you doing? He just grabs him and starts choking him says, you know that dinner for two at Chick-fil-A, you need to pay it now. And the guy, what is the guy's response? Well, look what the response is. It's the exact same thing that this other first servant did just a couple of verses ago. Verse 27, verse 29, excuse me. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. 
just have patience with me. I'm short right now. Have a little patience with me. I will pay you. And guess what? He made a promise that he could keep. He could come up with those funds over time. Same response. I'm begging you. Just have a little patience with me. I'm going to pay it off. So, what does the first servant do? What's his response? His response is verse 30. He refused. He refused. That was his choice. Right there. I'm asking you to give me a little bit more time. He refused. And when he refused, he then went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debts. He took that man, he threw him in the debtor's prison. Now, he couldn't sell him as a slave. History says that a slave went for about 500 denarii. You could never uh, put somebody up for a slave market who owed less than what a slave would go for. And since he owed 100, he couldn't sell him, so he threw him in debtor prison. Let him hang out there until he could somehow come up with the money to pay him. Well, I think most of the people that were sitting out there listening to the story kind of distressed them. Well, it distressed the co-workers of this second servant. And in verse 31, it says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. The phrasing there in the original language is they told every detail. So, I mean, they went blow by blow. I saw him go down the street, and he found that guy. And when he found that guy, first thing he did was he grabbed him by the throat. I mean, he used both hands. Put, kind of put that thumb in the Adam's apple there, and he was shaking him. He was he had violent. He was just shaking him like that. And then he looked in his face, and he told me, better pay him right now. And if he doesn't pay him, then he's going to send him off to a prison. And the guy got down, and he begged, and he pleaded. And he said, if you'll just give me some time, just give me some time, I promise I'll pay you. And he looked at him with that cold, steely glare, and he says, no way. Took that guy and took him to prison. And right now, he's sitting in debtor's prison. I'll tell you what, it's just kind of bothering us. Well, what distressed the people angered the king. Can I just give you a little background? You never want the king to be angry. Is that okay? Do we know that? Angry king is not a good thing. Well, the king's a little angry. So what does he do? Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. There's the change. I mean, just a few hours ago, it was splachna, pity, compassion on you. Now, it's you wicked servant. Just another take home for you. If your boss ever calls you in the office and says, you wicked employee, that's not a good start to the conversation. Can we, are we agree on that one? Are we okay with that? And so when the king calls him in and he starts out with you wicked servant, this is not good. He says, I forgave you all that debt. And why did I do that? Because you pleaded with me. I had pity on you. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Key to the whole passage. This is, this is where it comes down. Should you not have had mercy on that servant just as I had mercy on you? 
And so then you began to see the anger of him come out because he says, you should have followed my example and you didn't. So verse 34, and in anger, his master did not sell him as a slave. His master did not put him in, in debtor's prison. He says he delivered him to the jailers. Most of your translations have torturers. He delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So he was going to be there with torturers until he paid his debt. Inquire, when would he ever pay his debt? Never. So that's a forever. And then Jesus, talking to his disciples, looks them in the eye and says this. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, you just need to be straight on it. This is not talking about salvation. This is not that, that you're going to lose your salvation or, or that, that this, the torturers here is eternal punishment. This is talking about those who are believers. This is talking about those who, how they respond to others within the Christian family. And he's saying, listen, the Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The kingdom, it's like a merciful servant. So what is a merciful servant? What does real forgiveness look like? I'm going to give you four things I want you to write down. We'll just quickly touch on these that I think will help each one of us to understand what does it mean? How do you be this merciful servant? Jesus says the kingdom is like... If you make a decision for Christ, you come, you're part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God in your life. You become a part of that. So the question is, is how am I to be a merciful servant? This is what God expects of us. Number one, extend the same mercy and forgiveness to others as God extends to you. Extend the same mercy and forgiveness to others as God extends to you. In verse 33, Jesus in the story, gives the reason why the king was angry. He says this, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I extended forgiveness to you, so what should you do? You should in turn turn around and extend forgiveness to others. You see, the guilt of this servant was the fact that he had received mercy, but he remained unmerciful. He begged for and he received mercy and he received forgiveness from the king. And when he accepted that mercy and when he accepted that forgiveness, he then went to another servant and he didn't give it to him. To be a merciful servant means you need to extend the same mercy and forgiveness to others as God extends to you. And when we as believers accept the mercy and forgiveness that God gives to us, it is implied that we then in turn do the same for others. Because we're serving the king. And if the king is one that is merciful and forgiving, we should be just like the king. Mercy experienced should produce mercy demonstrated. Mercy experienced should produce mercy ex demonstrated. If you've received mercy, you need to demonstrate mercy. Once you've received this from God, we need to experience it with others. Okay? Number two. Remember the immensity of your sin debt that God forgives. Remember the immensity of your sin debt that God forgives. Now hang with me on this one. In verse 27, it says that out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. 
I believe that this first servant did not truly recognize the immensity of the debt. Now, he understood the punishment reprieve. He understood that the king says, I will sell you into slavery. As he's sitting there listening to the king, the king is saying, I'm not going to do that. So he understands the reprieve from punishment. And then the king says, I'm also going to forgive you of the debt. So now he feels this release of this debt that's over him, so he doesn't have to deal with that anymore. But I don't think he truly understood and recognized the immensity of that debt. If he had comprehended the billions with which he had been forgiven, then when he came face to face with someone that owed him a dinner for two at Chick-fil-A, he would have been more merciful and he would have been more gracious and he would have been more forgiving. But when he walked out of the office of that king, he, he didn't even think about the immensity of the debt. Because most of us, if we thought that I just have a billions of dollars taken off of my shoulders and I run into a guy who owes me a dinner for two at Chick-fil-A, I mean, I may come up to him and say, hey, have you got the money? He says, oh, no, man, I'll pay you back. Says, that's okay, man, man, just take your time. And when it works out, that'd be great. Because I've just gotten this taken off of me. But you see, the more I thought about this, this is so true to many of us in our Christian walk. See, we recognize God's mercy. If you're a believer in Christ and you're a Christian, you recognize God's mercy. Because when you made the decision for Christ, he says, you'll not, you'll not be going to hell, you'll be going to heaven. So I recognize his mercy. That punishment has been relieved. I'll spend eternity with him in heaven. And I recognize his grace because he forgives our sins. You know, I've gotten these awful things I've done against the holy God. And he says, Danny, I'm forgiving those sins. So I experience your grace. I experience your mercy. But I got to tell you, we forget the immensity of our sins. Because see, every man and woman stands before God spiritually bankrupt, unable to pay the 10,000 talents of debt of sins against God. And so we plead for mercy and our God forgives us. And too often we talk like it's a little sin problem that God took care of at our conversion. And now help me with this if you don't run into this. And this is especially true for us who've been Christians for a long time. We understand that we have this sin problem. We get convicted and, and God's spirit convicts us. And we say, you know what? Something's got to happen with that. I've, I've sinned against the holy God. And we come to a point to where we ask him to forgive us our sins. And, and what we talk about is that we pray and ask Jesus to come into our heart, his holy spirit to come in and to save us and to transform us and to renew us and to make us a new person. And then as we live all life and we keep going in ages to our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and our 50s and we continue on and we look back at that conversion, it's like God took care of that little sin problem that we had. You know, I was separated. I was lost. I was bound for hell. But I made that decision for Christ. That sin problem's been taken care of. Now I'm just moving on in life. And we forget the immensity of the debt. If you look closely at the point I just gave you, I phrased it in a specific way. Remember the immensity of your sin debt that God forgives. Present tense. Not that God forgave. 
And I'm just scared as believers too often we just think about that one time and then we just kind of feel like we got this get out of jail free card. We just go on and live and oh, I'm going to mess up a few times. God's going to forgive me. Listen, we're still stinking it up every day. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, it was not just for the sins before your conversion. It's every sin all the way till we take our last breath and we step into heaven. It's 10,000 talents of sin. It's the words that are wrong. It's the attitudes that are wrong. It's the actions that are wrong that go against a holy God that every day we struggle with. And it's not just like little debts that we say. It's just like sewage and filth. And it's just nasty. And anything we do that goes against the perfect holiness of God is just as gross and nasty and filthy as you can even imagine. And it just keeps filling it up. And no longer is it just a barrel. No longer is it just a swimming pool. No longer is it just a pond. It's just a lake. And it just keeps growing in there. And when we look over all our life and all the filth that's happened in our life, and Jesus says, I died for every bit of that. And you are forgiven. And I'm wiping all of that away. And when I can wade in the filth and just see what my life has been. And see what all this sin is and the immensity of that sin. And to know that God, the king, who had every right to send me to judgment to be separated from him. Had splotna, compassion, pity on me. And sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. And he says, Danny, if you accept that gift, I'm wiping every bit of that way. You know what's going to happen? You're still going to mess up. You're still going to sin. Jesus has still died for those sins. But I don't want you to ever take it lightly. And he cleaned all of that. And if I will ever remember the immensity of the sin debt that I have, then when I come up to somebody that's wronged me, said something bad, blogged something, tweeted something, whatever it is, then I'm going to have to approach them and say, you know what? Man, so much has been forgiven of me. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to forgive you. And we'll never get to that place unless we remember the immensity of the sin that was forgiven. I don't think the first server picked up on that. I think it just went right on past him. Because how in the world could he do that? And what Jesus is asking, he's asking us the same thing. How can you be forgiven so much? And then not extend that to others. I read this statement that I love. It says, stop focusing on what others have done to you and focus on what Jesus has done for you. Stop focusing on what others have done to you and focus on what Jesus has done for you. I get a bad habit of focusing what people have done to me. And when I focus on what people have done to me, gosh, I can just get that bitterness and, and that unforgiveness. I said, don't focus on that. Focus on what Jesus has done for you on there. And see, folks, I'm telling you, for those of us who have been believers longer, we struggle with this more than new believers. You take somebody that's come out of a difficult life and they have been so far away from God and when they get saved, do you like to be around those kind of people? I love it. Is that not exciting? Don't you love those people? 
because they've got the kind of joy that you wish you had. <laughs> and they're so excited. And you know what? They're excited because they've been forgiven so much. And then all of a sudden, somebody whose life has been wrecked with sin, they're the ones that can step up and they say, listen, I know you said this to me, but I'm going to forgive you. And people are blown away. How could you forgive me for that? Man, because I've been forgiven. You know, but for us as veterans in the church, it's kind of hard for us at times to forgive because we've forgotten the immensity of the debt of sin in which God forgives us. And so we get, we get a little judgmental, get a little pharisaical at times, get a little hypocritical on that. It kind of comes with our territory, and it shouldn't, but I'm just being real gut-level honest with you. Because as many people as I've come into contact with, I pick it up in my own life. I've seen newer believers who come from horrible lifestyles that were so much more forgiving of others. And I looked at them, I said, how could you do that? Man, then they start telling me about their life and all that God has forgiven them. And, and it just made it so much easier for them to forgive others. I just had to ask for forgiveness right there. <laughs> I said, Lord, forgive me for my lack of forgiveness. Remember the immensity of the sin debt that God forgives. Number three is this. Forgive others so you'll experience the fullness of God's forgiveness for you. Forgive others so you experience the fullness of God's forgiveness for you. In that verse 34, when he talked about taking him over there to the torturers and everything, this servant did not be able, was not able to experience the full forgiveness of the king. He didn't get to experience that. Because he didn't extend it to others. We talked about this in the, on the um, Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 12, it says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And when you look at that verse, really the best translation of that is forgive us our sins in proportion as we forgive those who sinned against us. Forgive us our sins in proportion as we forgive those who sinned against us. God, I'm asking you to forgive me in the same way, in the same proportion, I forgive others. And what you're telling God is, God, if I, don't, if I don't have a forgiving spirit in me, then I'm asking you, don't forgive me. And then he built on this in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He's saying you will not experience the fullness of God's forgiveness to you unless you extend that same forgiveness to those who have wronged you. And so whenever you ask God to forgive you for personal sin, you should ask yourself, have I forgiven the people who have wronged me? And folks, if there's nothing else you take from this sermon, may that just be something that stays in your mind. When you start a day or is there any time when you pray and say, oh, Lord, I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to forgive me for this. Then I think you need to stop and I need to stop and say, okay, God, has there been somebody that has wronged me that I have not forgiven? Bring that to mind and let me forgive them. And maybe the final point is this, forgive from a transformed heart of compassion. Forgive from a transformed heart of compassion. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples is verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you don't forgive your brother from your heart, there's that compassion. And what has to happen is when we receive Christ as Savior and His Holy Spirit comes into our life, we need to allow Him to do that transforming work, that metamorphosis to happen in our life. And when He begins to transform our life, then we become people of compassion. And we become people of compassion. Then when we see others, those who have wronged us, 
then we can get to the point to where we can forgive them. Forgive from a transformed heart out of compassion. Only God can change your heart and your response to those who wrong you. One of the commentaries uh, that I use as I do research is called the NIV Application Commentary. And uh, the uh, author of this is a man by the name of Michael Wilkins. And uh, he tells a story in there that uh, he had a stepfather that was, uh, that was abusive uh, to their family. and caused a lot of heartache. And, uh, and there was a real bitterness that was building in, in Michael's life. And when Michael went to serve in Vietnam, and he went to Vietnam, as he had that time there, the animosity for his stepfather grew and grew and grew. And he made a vow in Vietnam that when he got back to the States, that the first time he saw his stepfather, he was going to kill him. That was his vow. He came back to the States. After a number of months, when he got to the States, somebody introduced him to Christ. And over the next couple of months, he prayed, made the decision, received Christ, and began to live for Christ over about the next four years. And he didn't even think about his stepfather. Then all of a sudden, his stepfather pops up and shows up and comes in town. And Michael's wife invites him to dinner. And so he comes and he has dinner with him, a little bit uncomfortable. And it's been a number of years that they've seen each other. And as they're sitting there at uh, dinner, Michael makes this statement. I made a vow in Vietnam that the first time I saw you, I would kill you. Today is that day. That'll unsettle a dinner guest. And he said his stepfather began to slide in the couch over there. But then Michael said this. But I now know that I'm no better a person than you. God has forgiven me. And if he can forgive a sinner like me, I can forgive you. I will not allow you to hurt my family again. So don't think that this is made out of weakness. Rather, I forgive you because I have been forgiven. And he says, when I came to the awareness of my own sin, I knew that I needed mercy and forgiveness. And in receiving the gift of life that Jesus extended to me through his work on the cross, extending mercy and forgiveness to my former stepfather was a natural response. Wow. It was a natural response because I understood the mercy, grace, and forgiveness that was given to me on the cross. And because of that, it then became a natural response for me to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to others. The kingdom is like a merciful servant. May we be a people that are those merciful servants. And as we get ready to close our service and close this time in our message, I want you to do a little bit of an inventory of people that have wronged you, that you've been holding on to their wrong, you've allowed this root of bitterness to grow, and ask God to bring before you some people that you need to forgive. Some of them may not be living now, and it may entail you taking some time at home, praying, sometimes maybe even kind of writing, almost writing a letter to them, writing in a journal of saying, 
you know, I forgive for this and this and this. Or it may be some that it may be a phone call that needs to be made. And say, I've been holding this against you. And I just want to tell you that I forgive you for this and this that you've done. The kingdom of heaven is like a merciful servant. May we live lives that are filled of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your son has done for us on the cross. And that, uh, Lord, through his death on the cross, offering us hope for salvation, that there is grace, that there is mercy, and that there is forgiveness. And Lord, we understand that when unforgiveness rules our life, it begins to destroy our lives. Physically, it takes a toll, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. It just eats at us. And so I pray, Lord, that by looking at this merciful servant, that we would be people that would be forgiving of others. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit throughout, not just today, but throughout this week and the weeks to come, would remind us of the debt that's been paid for us and also bring to memory others that we have been harboring ill will towards that we need to just let go and that we need to release from that debt. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.